right, you turn to Mark chapter 12. Uh, how about Mark chapter 13, rather? Mark 13. You can turn to 12 and then flip a page, or maybe it's on the same page. Mark 13. We're here at the end of our walk through the Gospel of Mark. We started this journey in February of 2016. And today is our 53rd sermon in the Gospel of Mark. I had no idea it was that many, so I counted them up. And uh, we're going to walk through the entire chapter 13 today. So let's read it and get to work. Verse 1, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. These must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand, What you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in, the, in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the heavens and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds and with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the, for the, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender, And puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands a doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That's pretty self-explanatory, so we'll just pray and sing. (laughs) Let's obviously pray for God's help. Father, we are grateful for your word, even the difficult passages. Because through it you change us, and through it you speak, and through it we are your people. And so we ask for the Holy Spirit to come this morning and help us understand your word, illuminate the truth so we can grasp it, so we can believe, repent of our sins, and trust in Jesus again. Father, we pray you would do this in a way that glorifies Christ, that makes us more and more your people doing what you've called and created us to do. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start off by just walking through this entire chapter, dealing with some of the difficulties, and kind of give you an idea of what's going on, and then step back and draw some implications that would apply to um, anyone and anyone's interpretation of this chapter, no matter what your position may be. And the chapter starts off pretty straightforward. From the beginning of chapter 11 up until this point, Jesus has been on this head-on collision, this confrontation with the Jewish religious leaders. He walked into the temple after his triumphal entry, declared that the temple was, was unclean, that he had to cleanse out the money changers and those who were selling animals, um, uh, marked up animals to the people. And they were creating all these obstacles for people to get to God. And he said, this is not right. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And the way they are treating the temple is not what God intended the temple to be. But it, it began this, this time in Jesus' ministry where he's phasing out the temple, where the temple is going to be phased out of our, our, what's required of people to access God, where he himself would reveal that he is the temple. And once he ascends into heaven, the spirit comes, then, then we are the temple of God, the people of God, the church of God. And so it, this transition is happening at this time, chapters 11 through 13. And, and what you also have happening is Jesus in these head-on verbal confrontations with different religious leaders like the Pharisees or the Herodians or the Sadducees or the scribes. They all were trying to trick him, trap him, expose him, embarrass him, and he would have none of that as we saw all the way through chapter 12. And by the end of chapter 12, Jesus is pointing to this poor widow giving her two mites as the true worshiper, not all these heady, impressive religious guys, this poor woman who's giving just not even pennies. She was revealed as the true worshiper because she's giving her all, which is where Jesus is headed that week to give his all in worship and sacrifice to his father. Now, remember, this is all part of God's plan. There had to be conflict with the religious leaders. There had to be a way for Jesus, who had never committed a crime or sinned, to be crucified as a criminal. Like, he couldn't just walk up to him and say, can you crucify me as a criminal? I've got this prophecy to fulfill, this redemption of mankind to fulfill. Would you just do this favor for me? He couldn't do that. 
He had to be found guilty by some court of law, and the only court of law that would find him guilty were the Jewish religious leaders who found him guilty of blasphemy. So this all was part of God's plan that had to happen to accomplish redemption. So they leave the temple in chapter 12, and the disciples in verse 1 and 2 are still amazed at the incredible building that is the temple. Now the temple was amazing, as we've looked at back in chapter 11. 35-acre complex. Just the building. Perspective. The Pentagon sits on 28 acres. The White House sits on 16 acres. The temple itself was 35 acres. 12 to 13 football fields. The stones that the disciples refer to essentially were the size of boxcars. So think of a train going by and you see boxcar after boxcar. Those are one stone. One stone. You, you could fit one in this room. And that's about it. The doors, many of the stones were covered in gold, silver, and bronze. And so this building literally shone, almost glowed in the sun. And to make it more amazing, consider the surrounding buildings. It's not like there were other buildings that were impressive. Like you go to D.C. and you see the White House. Well, there's the Capitol, and there's the Washington Monument, and there's the Jefferson Monument. There's impressive buildings everywhere. But in Jerusalem, there was the temple And then a bunch of adobe mud huts and buildings around it. Nothing else was nearly as impressive as this huge monument just stood in the middle of of Palestine. Just shining out that this is the presence of God. These are the people of God. It was amazingly impressive, which made Jesus' statement very shocking that this building that had been 46 years in construction and was still being built by Herod, This building was going to be so utterly destroyed that not even one stone would be left on another. It would be leveled to the ground. It's hard to imagine such devastation. I remember uh, when the movie Independence Day came out in 96, the Will Smith, Jeff Goldblum, the aliens attacking, they depicted the White House being blown to smithereens by the lasers of the aliens. And I was 19 at the time. I don't remember another movie doing that so vividly. So it was just like, whoa, what is going on? This is crazy. These guys are really bad. I hope they kill them. But um, we can't even imagine. Like, we can't go there to imagine such devastation and destruction. It was even more unimaginable for the Jews, even though it had happened in their past. And so you can imagine the questions of the disciples as they move from the temple to the Mount of Olives, essentially across the street. They have this great view, perspective, looking down on Jerusalem and the temple. And Jesus' original four disciples, the first four that he called back in chapter 1, they ask him, When will all of these things happen, and what will the signs be? How will we know this is about to take place? What Jesus just prophesied in verse 2. And so Jesus begins to talk by first giving them a series of signs that aren't signs of the destruction of the temple, but he says these are the beginning of the birth pains. What you see in verses 5 to 13 are things that have to take place before the sign that leads to the destruction of the temple. We'll deal with the sign in a little bit, but verses 5 through 13, the false messiahs, the wars and rumors of wars, the earthquakes, the persecution that even comes within the family of God, within their own families. They will betray one another and turn each other over to the authorities. All these are just the beginning of the birth pains, and these things will happen first before the temple is destroyed, but they aren't the signs that it's about to happen. That takes us to verse 14. Verse 14, he is answering their question. Probably the most difficult part of the chapter. 
Here is the sign they should look for. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. And then Jesus goes on to talk about how awful this time of tribulation will be. And and how when they see this sign that they should run. And he says there will be more false messiahs and false, false prophets. But don't be led astray. I've told you this is going to happen. Just run. Flee to the mountains. Now there are numerous interpretations and suggestions for what he's talking about. Is Jesus still talking about in this section the destruction of the temple? Or has he switched to talking about the end times and his return? Or is this something else? And from, from my study this past week, I've gotten a wide swath of opinion. It's in my opinion, the plain reading of the text, that Jesus is still talking about the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Now there is a, a portion of this chapter where Jesus will talk about his return. He will talk about events that have yet to happen. You might call this the apocalyptic section of the chapter. There's apocalyptic. Apocalyptic simply means to reveal something that is to come. There's apocalyptic literature in the Bible. Daniel that we're about to walk through. We'll get to some of that in the month of August. Revelation is the most famous apocalyptic book in the Bible. In the apocalyptic literature, you have this cosmic language that characterizes that style of literature. Uh, language that fits certain sections of this chapter, like verses 24 through 27, but don't fit this section, verses 14 through 23. This section is more of a continuation of verses 5 through 13. Jesus predicting things that are going to happen before the destruction of the temple. And he gives a more specific sign there in verse 14, this abomination of desolation. So let's, let's deal with that phrase and see if we can determine what Jesus is referring to. Something that's so horrible, it's called an abomination, that leads to the desolation, the abandonment of the temple. Now, this phrase occurs three times in the book of Daniel. Daniel 9, 27. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Verse 31 of chapter 11, forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. In chapter 12, verse 11, and from that time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1290 days. Now, this prophecy in Daniel, those three chapters in Daniel, was understood by the Jews to have taken place when the Syrian general Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple in the year 167 BC, offered or established a throne to Zeus there in the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig on the altar to Zeus. Even the Jews got this. In their apocryphal book, uh, Maccabees 1, they referred to this event as the abomination of desolation. And his actions led to the Maccabean revolt, where the Jews were able, through the, the four sons of Judas Maccabees, were able to take back control of their country. And for a very brief time, they actually ruled themselves until the Romans came in and took control back from them. And this is what is celebrated at that time and is celebrated each year in the festival of Hanukkah each December, the Maccabean revolt, taking control of their country back from the Seleucids, the Greeks. Now, Jesus knows this history. He knows the meaning of this phrase to the Jews. And so he's saying that something like that is going to happen again in the temple. And this will be a sign to the followers of Christ that the destruction of the temple is close. So run. When you see this, Get out. Don't wait. 
Like, they, they don't, don't go back into the house like they were on the rooftops. Go immediately down the outside stairs of the house and take your things and, and get to the hills. Don't, don't go back from the fields to get your cloak. Get to the mountains. Now, it's not like an alien invasion where things are being destroyed and you have to run or you're going to get overtaken by it. But the, 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 the emphasis there is, is hurry. Don't waste time. You, you know, we're prone to just sit around and wait. Well, it's, it's not really that bad. We, we still have time. We still have time. Jesus is saying, you don't have time. Get out. Don't, don't delay. Haste. And so what's, what, what is this sign? What is he talking about? What happened that was a fulfillment of this prophecy? Uh, specifically, as it says in verse 14, when someone is standing where they ought not to stand. Now, if you read all the commentaries and scholarly opinions, there's 10, 12 different suggestions. So for the sake of time and clarity, it seems that if you believe Jesus is referring to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, there were events that happened beginning in the year 66, 67 AD that led up to that that desecrated the temple. Namely, according to Josephus, the Jewish historian in the first century, the Jewish zealots moved into the temple, allowed all manner of people to roam freely through the temple, even the Holy of Holies. They installed, according to Josephus, a clown named Fanny or Fanny as high priest. All of this is recorded as history. What's, what's interesting is other historians, namely Eusebius, a few hundred years later, Eusebius, looking back on this event, he recorded that the church in Jerusalem, because of an oracle, fled Jerusalem before the destruction of the temple. In fact, one pastor teaching to this passage said that no Christians were killed when the Romans destroyed the temple and Jerusalem. It was just Jews who were killed. Why? Because of this passage. Jesus gave it to the church. He told his people, when you see this sign, get out. And they actually obeyed him. They saw something. Could have been the zealots overtaking the temple. It could have been something else. They saw something before 70 AD. They got out of the city and they were freed from death that they faced in the persecution. Now, there's a lot more to this passage. A lot more stuff you can dig. If you want to know more, I can point you to some resources. Now, what I find fascinating is this. Jesus, who in verses 5 through 13 had told them to endure persecution and not be afraid, don't be anxious, now he tells them to run. When you see this coming, this devastation, destruction, get out. Doesn't Jesus know that it would be better for their sanctification if they stayed and faced death? Isn't that the, 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 isn't that the teaching of the Bible that the hardest thing that we face is always best for our sanctification and our good? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? No, it's not what the Bible teaches. But it's an idea that, that some have latched onto that is incorrectly applying that idea to life choices and situations. Like, I, I need to always choose whatever's the hardest and most difficult because God wants me in the worst and hardest situations because that's always best for my sanctification. Well, that makes discerning God's will very easy. Let me find the hardest possible job the job I'm least gifted to do, that will pay me the, the least amount, the job I will hate the most, and let me do that because that's best for my sanctification. Let me marry the person that I'm most unattracted to, that we have nothing in common with. I don't even like them. But if I can love them and stay married to them, that's best for my sanctification. Let me sell my car and just walk everywhere. And wear uncomfortable clothes and eat raw oats and drink tang. Because the more miserable I am, 
the better I'm going to grow in maturity. Like, how far you want to take this? If that's really true. Like, can we please stop this insanity and no longer make decisions based on this aesthetic, monk-like view of sanctification? You're reducing God's will to something very simple and easy. Whatever's hardest and most difficult is His will for your sanctification. No, you need the Word. You need the Spirit. You need God's people to discern God's will about the choices that you make. It's not as simple as whatever's hardest or worst or most miserable. That's what I need to do. Sometimes Jesus says, persecution, you need to walk through. And sometimes Jesus says, run, get out. It's not ever going to be as simple as do what's easiest or do what's hardest. And I understand where it comes from. It comes from what a lot of us grew up on, this happy, clappy, pie-in-the-sky Christianity where everything is great and rosy all the time, and that's what we should seek and desire. And people came along like the Harris brothers and said, do hard things for God. Grab your slingshot and go face the giants. Sometimes God calls us to do that, and we should do that. But we should also be listening to the voice of Christ through the Word, through the Spirit, doing this in community, listening to wise, godly counsel from people who love you. Jesus is never going to reduce His will for us to a predictable formula that applies in all situations. He wants your ears. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants a relationship where you have to trust Him and follow Him. Sometimes He sanctifies us through hardship. Sometimes he sanctifies us while he leads us beside still waters into green pastures. The good and the bad are all for our good and his glory in our life. So far in this chapter, all that Jesus has been saying is predicting accurately the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But in verse 24, he looks beyond that episode in the first century to something that we're still waiting for, the return of the Son of Man. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And when they see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now we're using a a typical apocalyptic language, cosmic changes and catastrophe. Now these events have not happened. Despite the four blood moons you've seen on Facebook, despite the total lunar or solar eclipses coming in August and people are going to be posting stuff, here's end times prophecy coming to pass. That's not this. Okay, this has not happened because it doesn't happen until the Son of Man returns. And when he returns, there's not going to be any question about if he's returned or not. I think that's, maybe that's him. Maybe it's a plane. Maybe it's a blimp. I don't really know. We're going to know. It is the Son of Man. These events have not happened. We're waiting for these things. The Son of Man, this divine title of Christ, Jesus' favorite name for himself, taken from Daniel 7, the Son of Man is returning and will gather his people to himself from all ends of the earth. Then, moving on to verse 28, Jesus uses the fig tree again to point to spiritual realities. Just as you know the season of the year by the leaves on the fig tree, so you will know the end is near by these signs that are taking place. And then you have verse 30, maybe the most controversial verse, along with verse 14 of the chapter, when he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So how you understand what Jesus is saying here depends on if you think he's referring to the destruction of the temple or the return of the Son of Man. Interestingly, both sides have a way to understand this verse. 
Obviously, those who think he's referring to the temple easily saw this happen. Within 40 years, this happened. People who are alive, when Jesus said this, they were alive when the temple was destroyed. So that's the clearest, most plain understanding of the text. Uh, That's what I think he's referring to. Those who see this as referring to the return of Christ have to give it a different meaning. Something like this generation that he's referring to, generally speaking, all believers living in the last days will still be alive. There will be believers alive when Christ returns. Now, understand when the Bible speaks of last days, it's talking about the time from the incarnation of Christ until the present time, the present age. We've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. That's a long time to be living in last days. But that's how believers have been living since the incarnation of Christ. And so some see this generation as those believers alive between the first and second coming of Christ. Now, I think Jesus is referring to the destruction of the temple. Plain reading of the text, but also because of the previous section where the Son of Man's return is predicted, and the last section, verses 32 through 37. The last section is clearly referring to the return of Christ. How do we know? Because Jesus said it's going to happen in an hour that no one knows except the Father. So if in the last section he's talking about the destruction of the temple, well, he's already told us that he knows when that's going to happen. So Jesus knows that hour. It has to be referring to his ultimate return because he says no one knows except the Father when I'm coming back, when the Son of Man will appear. There are no signs. There are signs when the temple will be destroyed. There are no signs when the Son of Man will return. There are signs that are so clear when the temple is destroyed that you can read them and go to the mountains. Get out of there. But Jesus says when the Son of Man comes, nobody's going to be ready for it. It's just going to happen like a thief in the night. Suddenly, quickly, that no one can predict So this is clearly the fact that the Son does not know when this is. This is clearly part of his incarnational, self-limiting knowledge that Jesus took on during this time of taking on the flesh, being limited by the flesh, just as he was hungry and tired and weak. In some ways, he was limited in knowledge and his humanity. But there there were no signs to warn of the return of the Son of Man. It can happen at any moment. We're not looking for the temple to rebuild. We're not looking for a resurrected Antichrist. We're not on some clear timetable with seven years of tribulation. We're marking off bowls and judgments and trumpets and all this other stuff that you can just check until Christ returns. We're told it could happen at any time. And so the fig tree passage, which tells us, you will see things taking place so you will know the end is near, can't refer to the Son of Man's return because we don't know. Has to refer to the temple being destroyed. Therefore, the generation of verse 30 has to refer to those who were alive when the temple was destroyed. It's the easiest explanation of the text that doesn't require you to do a lot of gymnastics. Now, again, there's a lot of people who are really smart and are very conservative evangelicals who disagree on that. So have fun with it yourself. But to put it all together, most of this chapter refers to the soon destruction of the temple in AD 70, with two sections looking beyond that to the return of Christ. I think that's one of the big conclusions you can draw from this chapter. Jesus is definitely prophesying the destruction of the temple, and he's definitely looking beyond that in making a connection to the return of the Son of Man. There's a lot more debate. I've read through 10 to 12 resources this week, and there's not 100% agreement between any two of them. So, again, it's that debated. But they are all in agreement that both events are in view in this chapter. There was no one who said this is all about the, the return of the Son of Man. There was no one who said this is all about the temple. So at least know that. 
Therefore, what are some big picture takeaways that, that we can see clearly from this chapter, regardless of where you fall in your understanding and interpretation of this? Well, one of the most obvious attributes that God is putting on display here is his sovereignty, his absolute total control over the course of human history and the affairs of man. Like even though Jesus is relaying to his disciples these horrific culture-altering events, there's no panic. He's not afraid. He's not worried. It's beyond anything that they could possibly imagine. And it's just a matter of fact. These days are coming. Be ready. I'm in charge throughout all of it. Things won't happen according to the timetable of the Jews or the Romans or anyone else. It's going to happen according to my timetable. So be ready. From now to the destruction of the temple to the end of time when the Son of Man returns. It's all happening according to the will and purpose of God. Total chaos will seemingly be in charge, but don't be alarmed, verse 7. The end is not yet. He speaks about their persecution beginning in verse 9. This entire section could read like a preview to the book of Acts. All the disciples hearing this are going to go through this. But notice, in the midst of being brought before councils and governors and kings to be beaten and made to testify, in the midst of all of that, you have verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. Despite the fact that they're going to try to shut you down and silence you and wipe out this movement, know that my gospel is still going forth and will make it to all nations. Now, some take that phrase as a sign of the return of Christ. So you simply put a map on the wall. You have all the nations. You start putting check marks. When the gospel gets to the nation, check, check, check. And when we get them all, then Christ returns. But you know it's never that simple. It's never, he's not going to make it that easy where we don't have to trust him. He's not going to put the plan and the outcome of the plan in our hands where we can figure it out. We're going to have to trust him. So a few problems with that. First of all, Jesus is speaking about people groups, not geopolitical nations like you see at the UN. A little harder to know when the gospel has proclaimed, been proclaimed to all people groups. Secondly, the early church saw this as something that was accomplished in the first 30 to 40 years of the church in the book of Acts. So so quick thing about the book of Acts. The outline for the book of Acts is Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit came. They began in Jerusalem and Judea in the first seven chapters of Acts until persecution came in chapter 8. Drove them from Jerusalem and Judea. You see Philip in chapter 8 proclaiming Christ in Samaria. Then by Acts 10, Peter gets a vision about food and is told by Jesus to not keep the gospel from the Gentiles. That they are clean and deserving of the gospel. So take the gospel to the Gentiles through Cornelius and the beyond. All the way to the end, you have the gospel going forward into Gentile lands before finally making it to the center of the world when Paul makes it to Rome by the end of the book of Acts. And from Rome, it would go and it could go to anywhere in the ends of the earth. This is why the book of Acts ends with the gospel in Rome. In a sense, Acts 1.8 is accomplished by the end of the book of Acts. Yes, in 2017, we keep pressing the gospel forward because we know with our more advanced data collection and understanding of societies, there are still people groups who don't have the Bible in their language and they don't have a church or any significant number of believers. And so that, but that doesn't turn this into this clear benchmark to help us know when Christ will return. There are no signs and no one knows. Keep coming back to that. Only God knows when that threshold is crossed. But in the midst of the persecution, see God's sovereignty. Don't worry about what to say, he says. Don't even be anxious. I will be there. The Holy Spirit, one of Mark's few mentions of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will give you words. 
Now, sadly, this passage has been used far too often to give lazy preachers an excuse not to study to preach. Just get up there and wang it, boy. Spirit's going to tell you what to say. Literally, that's been said to young preachers. But that's not what this promise is about. Followers of Jesus will be persecuted and hated because we're identified with Christ. And this has been the testimony of the church from the very beginning. It's the testimony of our brothers and sisters throughout the world today. Some religions have grown through coercion and taking the blood of those they're trying to reach and convert. Christianity in many eras and locations has grown through the blood of those proclaiming the message. We just have to be sure that we're persecuted because of the gospel, because of Christ, not because we're idiots and do stupid things, right? In Europe a few weeks ago, Todd told us things to do and not to do. And there was this level of discretion that that was important, being discreet as we go about the streets and we're distributing materials. We stood on the street corner with a platform and a bullhorn, loudly proclaiming the gospel in English. We would be persecuted, but not because of the gospel, it's because we're arrogant Americans who don't care about other cultures. We just want to shove our religion and our gospel down their throat. So even in the midst of persecution, because of Christ, God is sovereign. He's using it to accomplish his purpose. But, but notice in verse 20, he's even sovereign over the extent of persecution and tribulation. This awful time when the Romans were besieging Jerusalem and destroying the temple, the Lord was in charge. He was in control. He put a cap on the suffering, just as he did with Job. The enemy is allowed to roam and bring evil and suffering to people, but he's on a leash. The enemy can only go so far. And then, of course, we see his sovereignty most clearly in his return. Whenever that day comes, and it is coming, this is a, a key doctrine of the church. This is one of the essential doctrines, that Christ is literally returning. Like, like what do you do if you don't believe that's really going to happen? What do you do with passages like Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11? And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he, Jesus, was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, it went, behold, two, angel, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking at heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And people like Henry Fosdick used to teach in the early 1900s that the return of Christ is not a little return. Who believes silly stuff like that? But it would be the outworking of the teachings of Christ in the people of God as they more and more resemble Christ. Well, that's nice and cute and something to make you feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. Don't believe in the literal return of Christ, then you, you have a problem with Orthodox Christianity because the believers and people of God have always been looking for his literal return since the first century. In our Western scientific minds, we just can't imagine such a supernatural event. Where the sun will be darkened, therefore the moon won't shine, stars will fall, which could be meteors. And, and here he comes in great power and glory in the cloud. We just can't fathom the sky busting open and the Son of Man coming down in great power and clouds and glory. Jesus came as this cute little baby, and we stick him on our mantles and under and around our trees. He came to suffer and serve and give his life as a ransom for many. But I've never seen Jesus crocheted on a pillow or a Christian coffee mug coming in power and glory and clouds and might and honor. Kendrick read the passage from Revelation 19, this warrior returning to grab his bride. His eyes are like fire and his robe is dipped in blood. There's a sword coming out of his mouth to strike down the nations. And he's got a tat on his thigh with his name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus now. This is the Jesus who is returning. And read the rest of that chapter. And it's just a massacre 
of the nations who won't bow their knee before him. The battle of Armageddon is not a battle. It's a massacre. There's no fight. It's over as soon as he shows up. The hallmark Jesus we're all comfortable with, the airbrush Jesus that our culture loves, meek and mild, which he really wasn't, but that's the perception that he was just this meek and mild guy. That, that Jesus is gone. Jesus is now the Jesus of the book of Revelation, who appeared to John, his beloved disciple, whom John writes several times in his gospel. He would lay his head on the breast of Jesus. That's how close John was to Jesus. But when John sees Jesus in Revelation 1, he falls down like a dead man. He's overwhelmed by his might and glory. This is the Jesus who's coming in great power and glory in the clouds. And then Mark tells us in verse 27, he will send his angels to gather his elect, his people, those chosen by God. One of those theological terms that carry a lot of weight and also a lot of confusion. Essentially, just as God chose a nation in the Old Testament to be his people, so he chooses and elects who will be his people even up through today. This election, choosing us not based on anything in us. He didn't choose us because we're the best looking or the smartest or the holiest or the most righteous. It's unconditional election. He chooses us because of His sovereign purpose and will. It's His free choice. If you were to have to answer this question, why did God choose you to be part of the elect? Your only right response would be, I don't know. But I'm overwhelmed. He chose us. He didn't just choose those who would choose him. Because then his election is conditional upon us choosing him. And we essentially would be more sovereign over our salvation than God is. If he's only electing those who choose him. If your viewpoint of salvation ultimately leaves the final determiner of your salvation in your hands. Then you get credit for your salvation. Which means you could go to heaven and boast one day. I'm ultimately responsible for this. Your view of salvation has to leave the ultimate determiner of your salvation in the hands of the one who deserves and gets all the glory and honor. The one who gives the grace gets the glory. It has to end there. Now this is not an easy and nice and neat doctrine. There are many issues that are difficult with this doctrine. I'm I'm not saying at all that that I have it figured out or any of us have it all figured out. Why doesn't God elect or choose everyone? Or or if it makes you more comfortable to say he does, then then why aren't they saved? If it's simply because they don't believe, then why don't they they believe but, but others did believe? It's not because we're just smarter, we love him more. The same kids grew up in the same house, heard the same gospel, loved by the same parents. One believed, one didn't. It's not just because one figured it out. There's got to be more at play than just that. God's election, though, does not do away with our responsibility to believe and repent of our sins. This entire chapter is filled with imperatives. Be on guard. Stay alert. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Understanding God's sovereignty over our salvation does not lead to laziness or complacency. Or it shouldn't. Or if it does, it reveals that you don't really understand His sovereignty. We don't ask people, try and figure out if you're elect. I see that hand. You figured it out. Good for you. We proclaim the gospel. We call all people to see that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. There's only one Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you would repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, and that characterizes you the rest of your life until your dying breath, you're in. You're part of the elect. But only God truly knows who that is right here, right now. 
Only God knows who that is before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 tells us. It's not our job to figure out who that is. We proclaim the gospel. The Spirit works and calls people to life. But we believe there are more and more people in the city of Monroe and in the nations who are part of that group. This is really a doctrine you only get once you're in the family and you look back. It's very confusing if you're on the outside trying to look in. It's kind of like the pics I take with uh, Timothy helping me do work in the yard or in the house. He was helping me yesterday put my basketball goal together. and took forever to put 300 pounds of sand in the base of this basketball goal. And I was dumping sand and, and he's sticking his little hand up there and he's trying to put sand in the thing. And I'm like pushing his hand away. It's not really helping, but I, I love you, so I want you to help. Or... And so we got you know pictures of him doing that or pictures of him pushing the wheelbarrow with me and, and he like really thinks he's doing something. Like I'm tilting the basketball goal up to get all the sand to settle and I'm putting it back down and he's picking it up and he's pushing it down and look at that dad, look what I did. I'm like kid, you know, okay, good. I'll do anything. And, but one day he'll look back at these pics and be like, why did you put all these pictures on social media? I didn't give my okay on that. But he'll also really did all the work there. I really wasn't doing anything. And I was like, you're right. But because I love you, I wanted you working with me to to learn how to be my son, to learn how to work in a much greater way. It's the same way for us. We're in the family and we're looking back over our, our relationship with God and we more and more say, you know what? This is really mostly him. There's really nothing I can take credit for. But because he loves me, he calls me to be a part of this relationship, part of this sanctification, part of this salvation. But it's really all him doing all the work. He's enabling everything. He's equipping everything. He's initiating everything. He gets all the glory. There's nothing I can take credit for. Basketball goes up. We're playing basketball. Timothy really can't take credit for doing anything. He'll try. He really can't. Because his father did all the work. It's the same way for us. You also see his sovereignty in the passage in verse 31, the eternalness of his word. This is how he accomplishes his purpose and will in our lives and in the nations at all times because his word is not bound by creation but is outside of creation, beyond creation. It was his word that brought all things into existence, his word that sustains creation, his word that makes us alive, his word that will endure. And it's his word, the promises of his word that he tells us he's coming again. Like, do you really believe that? Is your faith and trust and belief in him and his word? Is his word the preeminent voice in your life? Does what he says have more weight and authority in your life than anyone or anything else? And so what is our response to these clear proclamations of God's sovereignty? Well, throughout this chapter, verses 5 through 37, you see 19 imperative commands. See that no one leads you astray. Do not be alarmed. Be on guard. Do not be anxious. Say whatever is given to you. Be on guard. Stay awake. Notice imperatives that aren't there. Create an end times chart. Consider yourselves reading the signs of the times to figure out when I will return. Post stuff on Facebook about blood moons and good prophecy conferences and support ministries of guys who keep telling us they have it figured out when they keep being wrong. Or even worse, predict and give dates. Nowhere are we ever told to waste one second time trying to read current events and trying to determine where we're at on the prophetic, ca- prophetic calendar of the Lord. Nowhere. We're in the last days, and at any time Jesus can return, be on guard. Stay awake. Be ready. That's what we're called to do. 
So there's several mistakes been made by God's people concerning the end times and return of Christ. One is the sin of the Thessalonians, who had someone who had, who had some in that church were so convinced about the return of Christ being so close that they just quit working and they just kind of sat around and mooched off the believers who continue to work and share their goods. So you have Paul's instruction in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. But you also had Peter to, uh, people to whom Peter wrote, who thought Jesus was never coming back. 2 uh, Peter 3, 3-4. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter told them in 2 Peter 3, 8-10, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the work that are done on it will be exposed. But I've also seen believers find hope in signs, dates, and, and, and seasons, whether it's false teachers who have uh, incorrectly predicted the return of Christ. So the Jehovah's Witnesses are famous because they've made eight predictions about the return of Christ. They've given eight dates. They're wrong every time. Or the famous book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. Or Harold Camping predicted on May 21st, 2011, which was not his first prediction that Jesus would return. That was kind of well known, and he's obviously wrong. Um, there was a guy uh, growing up in our church, an older guy, an older pastor, loved Jesus, super guy, retired. But I remember him telling us all the time, Jesus has told me I'm going to be alive to see the rapture. He's dead. He was wrong. Um, a distant cousin of mine who fancies himself a Bible scholar wrote a Bible commentary predicting Jesus would return in 2037. I wish I would have kept the commentary. I, I chunked it just to have it as a keepsake. Imagine, for instance, if Jesus did give us a date or a way to figure out the date. And just think through what we would do. You know what we would do. We got six months. Man, I got four months to watch Netflix, and then I'm going to get really serious about the gospel and, and, and loving people and serving people or my life with him. Exactly what we would do. Or I've seen believers find hope and certainty in end times perspectives that are not as nearly as solid as they think. For instance, the, the typical view of the last 150 years, the Schofield version of the end times, that things are going to get worse and worse, but before it gets really bad, the church is going to be raptured, and then we'll go through seven years of tribulation, and then Christ will return and establish a thousand-year kingdom. The dispensational premillennialism with pre-tribulational rapture. There are scores of issues with this perspective, not to mention the fact it didn't show up into the 1800s when a woman started having visions. But the most troubling aspect of this teaching is the false hope that too many believers have put into it. Not hope in Christ, but hope in getting zipped out of here before it gets really bad. Like, I wish it were true. It maybe is. That way Jesus wants to bring everything to a close. I'm going to be quick to repent and apologize as we are zipping out of here. I was going, sorry guys, let's go. Right? Issues that I've seen people have when you begin to question this theology this is, is they're putting their hope in this escape plan. And when I point to this, it's not as clear and easy as Kirk Cameron portrays it. Their faith is crushed. Like, literally. You mean I'm going to have to live through this? I'm going to have to go through tribulation and trials? Yes. 
Welcome to being God's people. We've always gone through that. He's always brought us through it or brought us home to be with him. But he is sovereign over it. And he's not going to leave us, abandon us, forsake us, leave us to ourselves. He is in control of every aspect of it. It's not something to be afraid of. It's something to be ready for, but never to be anxious about. You see this throughout this chapter. The perspective that Jesus wants us to have is not to be anxious or afraid, but to trust him because he's in control. You stay on guard. You stay alert. You keep following me. Remember, all of this is said by Jesus just days before he's about to endure the worst tribulation and trial any human being has ever gone through. The cross. When he's going to be ripped from his followers and they're going to be most tempted to abandon him and be afraid. And while at this time they would hide and be cowardly, there would be a day when all of these disciples would face the end of their life as martyrs of Christ. And they would face the end of their life with boldness, proclaiming the beauty and joy of Christ. And the same Holy Spirit that filled them fills us and allows us to endure suffering and tribulation. When we face the worst of the worst, whether it be persecution and death, whether it be rejection and ridicule, whether it be cancer and sickness, whether it be the temptation to sin and walk away from Christ, we have the same Holy Spirit in us to help us persevere through the end. He who endures to the end will be saved. Regardless of where you are or how much of a failure you may see yourself in in your walk with Christ, if you are his and he is yours, you will endure. You will persevere. You will be saved. Lean into him. Follow him. Be diligent. Be on guard. Don't assume your salvation. Examine yourself. But let your perseverance and your continual repentance and faith in Christ Be your assurance that you are His. And be bold until your dying breath or until He returns. It's a great passage that sums up. If you you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. I didn't put this on screen. Or you can just listen along. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains can't come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for our helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another. Build one another up, just as you are doing. When people want to get in end times discussions with me, you know, we listen and here's all your perspectives and viewpoints, blah, blah, blah. And I always go back to Acts chapter 1. Jesus had been resurrected. He had spent 40 days teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. He's about to send into heaven. And the disciples asked him in verse 6, Lord, 
Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Is this the time? You're about to make everything new now. And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. I'm not going to tell you. You're not even supposed to know it. Don't waste your time. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Our job is not to read the tea leaves, the culture, and the newspapers, to try and make connections when Jesus is going to return. Our job is to be witnesses for Christ, to point people to the gospel, their need of Him. That's all we're supposed to do. And whether He calls us home tomorrow because we're dead, or whether He returns tomorrow, we're ready. Because we've been doing what he's called and created us to do. Father, I'm so grateful that this is who you are, which makes us who we are. Chaos does not reign. Satan and evil and sin do not reign. The king who creates and rules over the universe reigns, and that is you. So in the midst of our chaotic lives, in the midst of our chaotic world, in the midst of times that seem to be getting worse and worse, when we're tempted to be afraid or anxious, settle our hearts with your truth, your spirit, the reality of who you are. That you are sovereign over every cell in our body, every breath in our lung, every beat of our heart. You are sovereign over every nation, every political leader, every government, every despot, every good ruler. You're sovereign over every single thing that happens. And nothing is happening outside of what you have designed and ordained for your purpose and will. You're in charge of this and we trust you. I pray you would settle hearts this morning with that reality. I pray, Father, that you would also inflame hearts this morning with passion, motivation. Because you're sovereign, there are people in our city that you are going to save. And you're going to use the foolishness of our preaching, our foolish efforts to love them. And somehow you're going to make them alive. So send us out to the city of Monroe, to the nations that we can have opportunities to go to. Send us out to our workplaces and our neighborhoods to declare boldly the gospel of Christ and make people alive. Because you have the power to do that. I pray for anyone who is here this morning. Who has not come alive in Christ. Help them to see their sinfulness. Apart from Christ there will be condemnation. There will be wrath. Help them to see the beauty of Jesus. He alone is the one true Savior. And make them alive this morning Father. As they repent and trust in you. As they turn for their sins and trust in Jesus. Do all these things, these good things for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.